From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hi, I'm Faiza Sanjar, and this is the JAMA Medical News Summary, an audio review of highlights in medical news appearing in this month's issues of the journal. Today, I'll be reviewing the April 2019 issues of JAMA. Starting with features in the April 2nd issue, Anita Slomsky writes about the factors contributing to the high maternal mortality rate in the U.S. relative to all other developed countries. According to experts, one of the issues that has stood in the way of addressing this problem has been the years of unreliable U.S. maternal mortality data. Data at the state level are sparse, incorrect, and often incomplete, and many state maternal mortality review committees are unfunded and understaffed. And experts argue that without analyzing aggregated state-level maternal mortality data, identifying broader patterns that could aid in developing an evidence-based action plan will be difficult. According to a recently released report, about 70% of pregnancy-related deaths associated with hemorrhage and cardiovascular and coronary conditions are preventable. California has successfully reduced maternal mortality by implementing quality improvement initiatives that include evidence-based best practices for addressing such preventable causes of maternal mortality. Now, hospitals nationwide are being urged to adopt such best practices bundles for maternal safety. While these initiatives show promise, racial disparities in maternal mortality and maternal mental health issues that contribute to postpartum deaths continue to present major challenges. Next up in features, Rita Rubin reports on the controversies and debates surrounding the safety and efficacy of mesh implants in treating stress urinary incontinence, a common condition that about half of all women face at some point in their lives. Also used to treat pelvic organ prolapse, Many women have reported severe complications with the implants, including antibiotic-resistant infections and vaginal erosion. Several civil lawsuits have been filed against companies that sell the products for concealing such risks, and authorities in several countries have limited the use of these devices for the treatment of pelvic organ prolapse and, in some cases, SUI. In the U.S., the FDA reclassified mesh products for pelvic organ prolapse as high risk in 2016, but left those for SUI as moderate risk. But for every horror story, there are likely many women that aren't having problems with the implants, and physicians are concerned that the lawsuits and restrictions may actually adversely affect women rather than help them. After all, SUI is debilitating and severely affects quality of life, and mesh implants offer a less invasive and effective approach to treating the condition. However, according to experts, what's lacking are definitive studies assessing the long-term safety of mesh implants for SUI. Without that information, patients can't make informed decisions about whether to undergo mesh implant surgery. To read more, visit the April 9th issue. In the April 16th issue, Rita Rubin also interviews Kim Schreier, MD, the second woman physician to serve in Congress. A newcomer to politics, Schreier says it was the 2016 elections and its implications for the country that compelled her to roll up her sleeves and get involved. Here's Rita with Dr. Schreier. Schreier, a Democrat from Sammamish, Washington, who practiced at Virginia Mason Medical Center Clinic, won her state's 8th congressional district seat in November. The 50-year-old Schreier, who lives with type 1 diabetes, is also the first pediatrician elected to Congress. 
You said that as the only woman physician in Congress, you provide a critical voice. There are other physicians in Congress, including two men who are Democrats in the House. But how might your perspective as a female physician differ from theirs as male physicians? I think we share some common goals of taking care of patients and wanting the best outcomes for for our patients. We went into this helping profession because we wanted to take care of people. And I think that especially Raul Ruiz and Ami Berra are fantastic role models, and I am excited and delighted to work with them. There was a time when there really weren't women doctors, and I think it's made a huge difference for women to have somebody who really firsthand understands going to bat for women. And I feel exactly the same way about Congress, that if you really want a doctor who is going to put the interests of children and women top of mind, it really helps to have a woman there. And we know from the data that when women win in general, we talk about things like paid family leave, and we talk about early childhood education and nutrition programs and what's really best for the families in this country. It's not that men don't get it. It's just that women get it on a different level. You've touched on some of these, but what do you hope to accomplish as a congresswoman, your most important goals? Well, my list is long. My first is really to take on the role of special interests and big money in politics. And we have done that by introducing H.R. 1 that will essentially get corruption out of politics. It takes away the power of special interests and money. It restores full voting rights. And it's going to be really hard to address prescription drug pricing when so many members of Congress and Senate take money from the pharmaceutical industry. How can you really be an honest arbiter if you are being funded by big pharma? And I would say the same thing about environmental policy and taking money from big oil and gas and coal. And so giving our government back to the people where it really should be, we can then go pursue policies that really will work for the people in this country and not for corporations exclusively. I will then take on the cost of healthcare, making sure every family can afford the care they need, looking at insurance company profits, also looking at the cost of prescription drugs and why we pay so much more in this country than in Canada, why it is that EpiPens cost $600 here in the U.S. And many of my patients have taken prescriptions for EpiPens, driven three hours north to Vancouver and filled their prescriptions there for $50. And next, of course, is to be a great advocate for women's reproductive rights and to really pursue policies like education policy and environmental policies that show adequate respect for the next generation. We got to take care of this planet. For more, visit our JAMA Medical News podcast. In another interview featured in the last issue of the month, Jennifer Abbasi speaks with Yasemin Mosavar Rahmani, PhD RD, about her recent study published in Stroke. The findings revealed that higher intake of artificially sweetened beverages was associated with increased risk of stroke and other cardiovascular conditions. Here's Jen with Dr. Mosavar Rahmani. Around two decades ago, researchers asked tens of thousands of participants in the Women's Health Initiative study how often they drank artificially sweetened beverages over the past three months. Recently, the researchers looked at how the diet sodas and diet fruit drinks the women consumed back then correlated with their risks of stroke, 
coronary heart disease, and death in the intervening years. The results were recently published in the journal Stroke. They showed that higher intakes of artificially sweetened beverages were associated with increased health risks. Dr. Yasmin Mosavar-Ramani led the study. She's a dietitian and associate professor of clinical epidemiology and population health at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. I recently spoke with her about the study, which got quite a lot of media attention. She said she hopes the public doesn't walk away with the wrong message. Your study isn't the first to look at associations with artificially sweetened beverages and cardiovascular disease. So what did the previous study show? The results have been mixed in different studies, but there seemed to be a certain pattern of association with cardiovascular disease. There was another study from the Women's Health Initiative in 2014 that looked at the same issue of cardiovascular disease, except they didn't separate out stroke the way we have in our study. So they looked at composite events. So that's heart failure, myocardial infarction, coronary revascularization procedure, ischemic stroke, peripheral artery disease, and cardiovascular death. So they looked at the whole thing and they saw a risk with a high consumption of diet drinks and these cardiovascular risk factors. So then in 2017, there was the Framingham Heart Study offspring cohort in men and women. These were 2,888, and they saw a risk, again, specifically for stroke and Alzheimer's disease. And this was almost threefold for stroke and Alzheimer's disease. So that's what really got me excited about doing this study. We thought we might just look again in the Women's Health Initiative and see if we're seeing separate associations with stroke. So what's different about your study? What's different is that we followed, first of all, 81,714 women over an average of 11.9 years. The previous study in the Women's Health Initiative followed the women for about eight years. So we have a longer follow-up time. We also looked separately at stroke and ischemic stroke and its subtypes, which was recently available to us, which the previous study didn't look at. So tell us what you learned. What were your main findings? What we found was that 5.1% drank two or more artificially sweetened beverage drinks daily, but most were infrequent drinkers, so that's about 64.1%, had never or less than once a week of these artificially sweetened beverages. So when we looked at this group of high versus low consumers of diet drinks, we found that women who had a higher level of consumption were 23% more likely to have a stroke, so that's fatal and non-fatal stroke. 31% more likely to have the type of stroke from a clot in the brain or ischemic stroke, and 29% more likely to develop heart disease, this is fatal and non-fatal, and 16% more likely to die from any cause. The April issue also featured four quick uptakes, where we recap recent studies and events in the world of medicine. In the first, which appeared in the April 2nd issue, Jennifer Abbasi reports on a recent study in JAMA Pediatrics that found new cases of type 1 diabetes decreased among Australian children after the rotavirus vaccine was introduced. It's too soon to conclude that this relationship is causal. However, if the findings are confirmed, they could indicate that rotavirus infection may be one environmental factor that can promote development of type 1 diabetes in susceptible children. 
In April 9th installment, Rebecca Volker reports on an international collaboration that has developed a resource to guide interpretation of genetic variants detected in BRCA1 and BRCA2 tests that are used to assess breast cancer risk in patients. These tests identify both benign and pathogenic genetic variants. But information about specific variants, particularly those of uncertain clinical significance, often isn't systematically curated, expertly reviewed, or easily searchable. In a recent PLOS Genetics article, researchers described the new resource, BRCA Exchange, as a central repository for expertly reviewed data on BRCA1 and 2 variants. This web portal can be easily searched and contains information from clinicians, clinical laboratories, researchers, and several existing clinical databases. It includes more than 20,000 unique BRCA1 and 2 variants, 3,700 of which are classified as pathogenic. Clinicians and patients can also access the portal through a free app available for Android and Apple devices. Next up in quick updates, I recap findings from a recent JAMA psychiatry study that found childhood lead exposure may affect personality and mental health in adulthood. In the longest and largest psychiatric follow-up study involving lead-tested children to date, researchers tracked hundreds of children in New Zealand for over 30 years. This cohort was evaluated for symptoms of mental disorders over time and underwent personality assessments. The findings revealed that childhood lead exposure was associated with psychopathology and difficult personality traits in adulthood, even after adjusting for sex, maternal IQ, socioeconomic status, and family history of mental illness. The findings suggest lead exposure during childhood may have long-lasting consequences for mental health and personality. See the April 16th issue to learn more. Finally, in the last quick uptakes, Jennifer Abbasi reports on a recent study in human reproduction that suggests exposure to certain chemicals in consumer products could explain why some girls are entering puberty early. In the last two decades, girls have been entering puberty at younger and younger ages, which increases their risk of mental health problems and future breast and ovarian cancer. Although animal studies suggest chemicals in cosmetics and personal care products can alter reproductive development, results have been inconsistent in humans. In this study, the researchers followed over 300 children and found the prenatal or prepubertal exposure to chemicals used in some toothpaste, hand soaps, cosmetics, and other personal care products were associated with early puberty, particularly in girls. However, the findings need to be replicated in other study populations to be sure they aren't due to chance, noted the study authors. See the April 23rd issue for more. Next up in our running series, Bench to Benside, Tracy Hampton discusses a recent Nature study that provides additional evidence that amyloid beta proteins associated with Alzheimer's disease can be transmitted from person to person by certain medical and surgical procedures. An earlier study had reported extensive amyloid pathology in postmortem brains of patients treated with prion-contaminated, cadaver-derived human growth hormone in childhood. The findings raise the possibility of human-to-human transmission of not just prions, but also amyloid beta. However, the study was unable to determine whether the amyloid pathology was caused by the transmission of amyloid beta from treatment with contaminated HGH. Following up on their earlier study, researchers have now shown that the cadaver-derived HGH used for treatments decades earlier contained high levels of amyloid beta and tau. 
mice interest-cerebrally inoculated with the contaminated samples developed extensive amyloid pathology. The findings suggest the contaminated HGH was likely the cause of amyloid angiopathy the authors previously reported in these patients. However, at this point, the researchers say they can't yet confirm whether medical or surgical procedures have ever caused Alzheimer's disease in people or how common it might be to acquire amyloid pathology in this way. For more details, visit the April 2nd issue of JAMA. In our monthly column covering the latest biotech innovations, Jennifer Abbasi writes about a new machine learning model that accurately predicted past infection with cholera-causing bacteria from antibodies in just a few drops of blood, an approach that could be used to improve cholera incidence estimates. In other biotech news, a novel sensor to wirelessly monitor vital signs in the neonatal intensive care unit and a new historic case of a patient that achieved HIV remission after hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Visit the April 9th issue of JAMA to read more. Moving on to the headlines in the news from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Food and Drug Administration. Bridget Kuhn covers a recent CDC report that suggests a 2018 outbreak of measles in California may have been driven in part by children who received broad medical exemptions for measles vaccination. According to other CDC reports, e-cigarette use during pregnancy may be common despite risks. Rates of serious blood infection have stalled in the U.S. And youth sports remain the leading cause of traumatic brain injuries among children and teens. For more details, visit the April 9th and 23rd issues. Rebecca Volker reports that the FDA issued a warning regarding the increased risk of dying or developing lung blood clots in patients taking twice-daily 10-milligram doses of the rheumatoid arthritis drug tofacitinib. In other headlines, the agency announced a new tri-agency task force to facilitate the use of pathogen-specific diagnostics tests during public health emergencies and added a boxed warning to the gout medication Febuxostat. I also write about the agency's recent approval of esketamine nasal spray as an adjunctive therapy for adults with treatment-resistant depression. The agency also warned that robotically-assisted surgical devices haven't been established as safe and effective to treat or prevent breast or cervical cancers, and announced a formal agreement to jointly regulate cell-based meat products. For more news from the FDA, visit the April 2nd and 16th issues. And last but not least, in the April 23rd issue of JAMA, Anita Slomsky reviews findings from five recently published randomized clinical trials. Among them, a study in The Lancet found that rapid blood pressure reduction in patients with acute ischemic stroke was safe, but didn't improve functional status. In other clinical trial news, a suicide prevention intervention that supplemented standard care with caring text messages didn't reduce current suicidal ideation or suicide risk incidents in active duty military. And flexible duty hours in internal residency programs didn't compromise patient safety or residents' sleep. To read more about these and other trials, visit our Clinical Trials Update column. For more in medical news, including the JAMA Forum, Global Health, and Health Agencies Updates, visit our April issues online at jamanetwork.com. That's all for this month's medical news highlights. Join us next month for another episode of the JAMA Medical News Summary. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. 
You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. Audio production of this episode was by Michelle Krasinski. Once again, this is Faiza Sanja, director and editor of JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.